everyone. Welcome back to the Recover with Carly podcast. Um, I'm so excited for today's episode because it's a little bit different than my normal episodes. You all know I love interviewing people. I love having guests on the podcast because it brings a different perspective. I have someone who I can engage in conversation with and laugh with and cry with and I just love having guests on. But I also have a soft spot for solo episodes. Um, And so today is a solo episode and it's a little bit different than previous ones because I'm gonna be answering some of the questions that you all have submitted to me uh, via Instagram. So last week or two weeks ago, I posted on my stories asking you all to submit some questions that you would like for me to answer on the podcast. And let me just say these questions were amazing. They were so amazing. And I wish, I really, really wish I had enough time to answer every single one of them today. But unfortunately, I don't. Hopefully, I can make this a more regular thing. Um, I just, I love this concept of having you all be able to submit questions and me answering them on the podcast. One, because I feel like it just feels really cool to like hear your name and your question when you're listening to the podcast Um, and to also have that connection between the two of us where I'm reading your question and I'm answering it for you. Um, So I think that is just a really cool way to navigate solo episodes. So I'm probably going to do these more often. So if you submitted a question and I'm not able to answer it today, just know that I will try my best to get to it at a later date with a different episode, Um, but definitely something I wanna make more common. So today I'm gonna be answering five questions, five questions that I feel like are all slightly different in some capacity, um, but also I feel like are really empowering and really important questions for us to discuss. Um, Hopefully by the end of this episode, you're leaving with a little bit of knowledge and empowerment and this feeling of like, okay, I feel like I can, I can do this. I can start making these small changes. I can start rewiring my brain or, you know, reframing my thought process um, or advocate for myself in certain situations. So that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was choosing the five questions. And so hopefully you all leave here feeling that way at the end of the episode. Let's go ahead and get into these questions. I'm gonna go one by one. I'm gonna try and keep it relatively short and sweet, but you all know me, I am a rambler. I go on and on and on. I love to talk, I love to hear myself talk. And if I allow myself to do that, I'll be here for five hours. So I'm going to be really aware of how long I'm spending on each question while also providing you with some pretty good resources and information um, regarding how to navigate each situation. So our first question comes from Danae and the question is tips on finding a therapist that's trauma informed, eating disorder informed, and haze informed. And for those of you that don't know what haze is, haze stands for health at every size. This is a really, really good question. This is also a really important question because in the therapy world, in the clinical world, counseling, therapy, dietitians, nutritions, personal trainers, if you are someone who has experience with an eating disorder or trauma, um, or you've struggled with your relationship with food and your body, finding someone who understands that is really important. Unfortunately, though, it's also very hard because... We don't have a lot of clinicians who are in this space. Um, The work is still being done. We are still trying to get majority of clinicians in this space, but unfortunately they all aren't there. And because of this, there have been people who have been re-traumatized, who have had negative experiences with clinicians or with people in this space because of that. So one tip that I have for finding someone who is either trauma-informed, eating disorder-informed, informed, or health at every size informed is Intuitive Eating, their official website. I believe it's intuitiveeating.org. They have an entire directory of counselors who are certified intuitive eating counselors. And this could be a good place to start depending on what you're looking for. Um, 
one thing that I also like to recommend is you can just go onto Google and type in eating disorder informed therapists in Columbus, Ohio. And you should be able to find either websites of these therapists or Psychology Today links of these therapists. Um, and just take a little bit of time to, to research what verbiage they're using, um, what is on their website, um, how they are kind of marketing themselves, and take it nice and slow and give yourself the time to really find that right person. And I will say when it comes to finding that that right person, unfortunately, this sometimes takes several tries. And I know that that's the last thing you want to hear. And I know that that is so incredibly exhausting. But unfortunately, sometimes you have to view this as if you're hiring someone, right? So look at it as like an interview process. Um, if you have the ability to see several different therapists once, some therapists do free um, consultations, so you can see them once for free. Um, some don't, not, every, not all of them do that. Um, but if you have the means, the financial means, I would try and schedule one session with several different clinicians, maybe once a week or once every other week so that you can kind of get a feel for, um, a couple of different clinicians. And then you can make a choice depending on what your thoughts were about that clinician. You can take that session to ask them questions um, on their knowledge of being trauma-informed or eating disorder-informed um, or haze-informed. So that way you aren't just choosing one and then feeling like you're stuck with that one therapist for a long period of time. That's the great thing with therapy is that if you aren't feeling like that therapist is the right fit for you, you have the choice to not see that therapist and explore other options. Um, that's one thing we learn in school is that we can't be the perfect fit for everyone. And there's gonna be times where we see clients and we end the session and we're like, hmm, this doesn't feel like a great fit. Um, and it's okay to acknowledge that. And maybe even you can ask that therapist if they have resources or recommendations for other therapists who are haze informed or who are eating disorder or trauma informed. And they may be able to provide you um, with recommendations or referrals to another clinician. So I would just start by Googling and then allowing yourself to potentially see a couple before you decide. Um, split it, you know, you can spread it out over a month or several months. Um, and during that time, you can also explore some online free resources. So the National Alliance for Eating Disorders and Project Heal, they both offer really amazing support groups online. So I would explore things like that. So where you're getting support and you're allowing yourself to be a part of these communities and have these conversations and feel less alone while you're in the process of finding that clinician. Um, but I think that just allowing yourself time, time to find that person and doing the research and asking questions. You can always email therapists if you, if you want, if you want to reach out to them before you schedule a session with them, you can always email them and ask them, Hey, so I'm looking for a therapist. I found you on psychology today, or I found you on in the intuitive eating directory. And I just had some questions. And they may be willing to answer those questions over email, or they may say, hey, let's schedule a free consultation call um, or a session. And they can hopefully answer your questions there. But I think just reaching out, asking the questions, um, and understanding that it's okay if you see one and it doesn't work. It's not your fault. It doesn't mean you're failing. It doesn't mean that person's not out there. It just means that maybe a little bit more time and research um, needs to go into it. I wish it wasn't this difficult. I wish it wasn't this complex. I wish there wasn't so many hoops and hurdles we had to climb through and jump over to find a clinician um, 
that best supports us. But unfortunately, that is the current state of our um, medical system, mental health system. Um, you know, and I think even exploring like whether or not you're okay paying out of pocket, if you can afford to pay out of pocket, sometimes that makes the process a little bit easier because you don't have to find one specific person who is in um, network for your insurance. But I also know that that is not realistic for a lot of people and it should not be that difficult for an individual to receive mental health care. Um, We shouldn't have to go through this long list of clinicians, figure out which ones fall under our insurance, go through the process of getting it approved by insurance and all of this bullshit. Um, So that's why I say if you have the means to see someone and just pay out of pocket, that may be easier. I know that clinicians range um, the practice that I'm at, the associate clinicians, which is the level that I am. Um, An associate just means you are currently working toward your 3,000 hours to then become a licensed clinical social worker. Um, The associate clinicians at my practice charge $80 a session. And so for some people, that's quite a bit lower than some of the other therapists that they've seen. So just explore rates, call offices, ask them the questions you want to ask. Um, email therapists, email clinicians, ask them where, where they stand with these three, um, the trauma, the eating disorders, and the health at every size. And hopefully they will be upfront and honest with you and say, I don't have much um, knowledge on health at every size, or I don't have much knowledge in eating disorders. And they can maybe refer you to someone or just say, unfortunately, I don't think that we're a good fit. So Hopefully that is helpful. Um, I did mention psychology today a little bit earlier. This is a really helpful resource and one of the first places that I always recommend people go. Like if I get a question on Instagram and someone says like, how do I find a good therapist? One of the first things I always recommend is going to psychology today. This is a huge directory of clinicians and you're gonna put in your location and it's gonna pull up a long list of clinicians in your area. And they are gonna have little profiles. It's gonna tell you what they specialize in. It's gonna tell you what insurance they take, what their rates are, if they offer telehealth or if it's only in person or if they only offer telehealth and they don't offer any in person. And um, this is a really great place to start to create a list of clinicians in your area. And then from there, you can start kind of reaching out to them and, you know, draft one email that says, hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm looking for a therapist who specializes in this, this, and this. I found you on Psychology Today, and I'm just curious if you specialize in these things. And draft that email, send it out to several different therapists. And from there, you can figure out, okay, this therapist does specialize in this. Um, I'll schedule a session with them if they have availability. Unfortunately, there's also the case on Psychology Today where not everyone's account is, like their profile is up to date. So just keep that in mind. If you reach out to someone and it says they're in person, they may not have updated that since COVID, so they may only be virtual right now. Um, So just keep those things in mind when you're reaching out. So those are just some of my tips on finding a therapist and asking those questions and advocating for yourself. I know it's exhausting having to constantly advocate for yourself, but I promise once you find that person, once you find that therapist, It is life-changing and you will probably more than likely say, okay, this was definitely worth the effort and the time that it took to find this person. So today, hopefully that answers your question. The next question is from Anne and it has kind of a little bit to do with the question that I just answered. Um, But Anne asked, how do you advocate for yourself in the healthcare setting? And I felt like answering this question this week was very fitting because if you follow me on Instagram, you probably have seen I am navigating 
this whirlwind of trolls and people on Instagram regarding a reel that I made a couple of weeks ago regarding asking to not be weighed or to not see your weight when you go to the doctors. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions when we talk about this because so many people are still in this headspace that your weight is the only determining factor of your health. And it's so interesting because I'm, I'm getting comments from doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals who are like, no, this, this, we don't need your weight in a standard office visit. There are obviously certain situations where we may need your weight, like dosage of medication, or if you are having surgery and you're getting anesthesia, like there's all of these different scenarios in which your weight is important, but that doesn't mean that the patient needs to know what their weight is in those situations. And so there's just so many people who are still stuck in this idea that if someone is asking not to see their weight or they're asking not to be weighed, that they're avoiding something, that they're in denial, that they're trying to hide from the fact that they're quote unquote unhealthy or they're quote unquote overweight. And I think that this thought process is so interesting because There are so many people of all different shapes and sizes who request to not see their weight or to not be weighed when they go to the doctor. And oftentimes this has very little to do with the size of someone's body. And it has more to do with the relationship that that person has had with that number on the scale throughout their life. And so Advocating for yourself in these situations is really, really important because you know what that relationship with that number on the scale has been for most of your life. And if you are in eating disorder recovery or if you're working on healing your relationship with food and your body or overcoming disordered eating, understanding that not knowing that number on the scale is a scientifically proven, very effective therapeutic approach because that number says very, very, very little. Like it doesn't tell us much. It doesn't tell us what our health really is. It doesn't tell us what's going on internally. It it truly tells us very, very little. And that's a concept that's really hard for people to wrap their heads around because we live in such a diet culture heavy society that people find it so much easier to just assume their health and their worth and their well-being based on a number. When in reality, we know that there are so many other contributing factors um, that play a role in someone's health. So when it comes to advocating for yourself in the healthcare setting, this can be really intimidating very, very intimidating. And if I'm being honest, the first time I ever did this, the first time I ever went to the doctor and I said to the nurse, hey, do you mind if I either don't see my weight? Do you mind if I step on the scale backwards? Or do you mind if you just don't weigh me at all? I was fucking terrified. (laughs) I was so scared because I didn't know what their reaction was going to be. And I think this is so unfortunate because A lot of times when we're in that medical setting, when we're at the doctor's office, there is this weird power dynamic between the doctor and the patient. And we've kind of been led to believe that whatever the doctor says is correct and we can't question it and we can't think about it for ourselves when in reality that is just not the case at all. We have the right to question certain things. We have the right to say, hey, why do you need my weight right now? Why is it important for you to know how much I weigh? And having the doctor explain to you why they're asking for that. Because I guarantee a lot of the time, it's just habit, right? It's like this, it's just a procedure. It's part of checking you in when you come to the doctor. And it doesn't have to be that. 
and you can go into the doctor and share your concerns and share that, you know, your shoulder's been sore or you broke your finger or, you know, your neck's been sore or you need your IUD removed and replaced without needing to know what your weight is, without needing to know what that number on the scale says. So I think when it comes to advocating for yourself, I think there's a large aspect of that that includes a sense of like confidence, understanding that you are worthy of standing up for yourself in those situations. And also understanding that you're not always going to get a negative reaction. I think that this was the biggest thing for me is I was convinced that every single time I went to the doctor and I asked them to either not weigh me or to not tell me my weight, I was going to have this like really big dramatic response and that hasn't really been the case. It has been like I've gotten weird responses like one or two times ago when I went to the doctor, I requested to do a blind weigh-in, so to not see the number on the scale. And the nurse like chuckled and went, okay. <laughs> and I was like, why are you laughing? Because <laughs> this is not a funny manner, uh, not a funny matter. And so I think like that can be intimidating, but just knowing that at the end of the day, when you leave that doctor's office, you're gonna feel so proud of yourself because you chose to advocate for yourself. And I think the second part to this is having your tools, your coping skills that you can utilize after the doctor's office visit because you may feel mentally and emotionally exhausted from that. So have your tools that are going to help you cope with those feelings, that are going to help you relax, call a friend, talk to someone about it, um, but just know that you're going to feel really proud of yourself when you leave that doctor's office and you you know that, hey, I advocated for myself and I, you know, asked a hard question and that was worth it because I'm not leaving this doctor's visit feeling extremely overwhelmed with the number that I saw on the scale or I'm not leaving this doctor's visit feeling almost triggered to go back into eating disorder behaviors and you deserve that. You deserve that space to advocate for yourself. And I think that that's why I'm so passionate about creating reels like I did, because it gives you almost a script, gives you something you can say. The reel that I made was very detailed. Um, there were several steps to it, and it, it may not always be that way. But sometimes, and there have been situations for me where I've gone in and I've told the nurse, hey, I have history of an eating disorder. Can we please... Can I either not be weighed or not set the number on the scale? And she's responded positively. And then I get into the room and another nurse comes in and I say, hey, just a reminder, I let the first nurse know um, I don't want to know my weight. I have a history of an eating disorder. They go, okay, great. And then the doctor comes in and I feel like I have to let the doctor know as well because I don't know if the nurses are relaying that information between each other or to the doctor. And I don't want the doctor to come in and then say something about my weight right off the bat. So I always try and tell the doctor as well. Hey, I let the nurses know I have a history with an eating disorder and I, I don't really wanna know what my weight is um, or don't feel the need to know, don't feel like it's important. Um, and the doctor responds, great, thank you for letting me know. And then sometimes I'll even let them know at the end as well because there have been times where I have told three different people please like make sure you don't tell me my weight and they're all very responsive like they respond really positively to it but then when I'm about to leave they hand me my aftercare forms and right on the front of my aftercare forms is my weight and the reason this bugs me is because I don't have control over when I choose to see that number or not and I feel like that's something that I deserve to have a say in. So sometimes I'll even remind the doctor before the doctor leaves the room, I'll say, hey, just a reminder, um, can you make sure that number on the aftercare forms is like sharpied out or removed in some way? And they are usually like, oh yeah, thank you for the reminder. Yes, we can do that. And so sometimes it takes like several reminders while you're at the doctor. Sometimes it doesn't, but just knowing 
what to say, having a script for yourself and knowing that, you know, you are worth advocating for, I think is, you know, that motivation that we all need to stand up for ourselves in the healthcare setting because it can be very intimidating and it can be very hard to stand up for ourselves, but it is important to do so. Ask the questions, ask for, you know, more detail, ask for an explanation and, you know, have that conversation with your doctor because I'm sure Unfortunately, most doctors are used to, you know, saying one thing and the patient being like, okay, great, thank you, with no questioning. And I think that's how a lot of people end up in unfortunate situations and then they feel very unsafe and very scared and overwhelmed when they go to the doctor and it should not be like that. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that is helpful um, and hopefully that answers your question and just know that you are worthy and deserving of advocating for yourself in those situations. The next question comes from Alexa and Alexa asks, I want to fuel my body with food and have a healthy relationship with exercise, but all I've known is toxic diet culture. Let me just say, I relate so much to this and I think so many people listening um, relate to this as well. Navigating your relationship with food and exercise is really difficult, especially when you're trying to unlearn specific behaviors. So growing up, we've all been taught specific core beliefs or automatic thoughts around food and exercise and our bodies. And a lot of times those core beliefs and those automatic thoughts are rooted in diet culture and fat phobia because that is the society that we live in and many of our parents existed and lived in a society that also was very heavily focused on diet culture and weight loss and so for many of us myself included i really struggled with seeing food as food because growing up there was good foods and there was bad foods. There was healthy foods and there were unhealthy foods. And these labels, which I didn't realize this in the at the time, but have come to realize this over years of self-work and exploration, have realized that the labels that I was putting on food or that maybe my parents were putting on food or that society was putting on food was creating this very specific relationship with food. So if I ate good foods, I felt really good. I felt proud of myself. I didn't feel guilty. If I ate bad food, I felt guilty. I felt like I needed to work that food off. I needed to do something to make up for the food that I had just eaten. And so one of the biggest things that I've really had to do in terms of navigating and healing my relationship with food is unlearning these labels, unlearning these core beliefs or automatic thoughts that you may have that are associated with food. Understanding that food is food and we don't need to constantly be thinking about whether or not we're always eating healthy food, whether or not we need to feel guilty when we eat quote unquote unhealthy food, and really trying to just remove labels and understand that food is food. Overall, the way that we speak to ourselves when we are thinking about food is having a very extreme impact on the way that we feel after we eat that food or the way that we feel just when we think about food in general. So I think my first tip in healing this relationship with food is recognizing what those core beliefs are and really trying to rewire your brain or create new core beliefs that align with the way that you want to see food, that align with this relationship that you want to have with food. And I think that this is obviously a lot easier said than done, but I think the first step is just acknowledging what are these old beliefs? What are my current core beliefs? What have I been taught growing up? Um, how do I see food? 
What internalized fat phobia are you navigating and how can you rewire that thinking to be more positive and healthier in terms of that relationship with food? Um, but the number one thing really is trying your best to remove those labels, understanding that your body is very communicative, your body is very loud, your body is very vocal. And if you are craving something, there's probably a reason you are craving that. And so being able to honor your hunger cues, um, maybe if you're in a place where you feel like it's necessary, maybe working with an intuitive eating coach to help you get to that place where you can implement intuitive eating and not necessarily feel like you're stuck in that diet mindset. So that's what I recommend in terms of navigating the food side of things. And kind of similarly, the same with exercise or what I like to call movement. Um, the reason I use movement over exercise is because I feel like I have a pretty negative um, relationship with the word exercise because growing up it was such a not always negative but not healthy word or relationship that I had with exercise um, I felt like it was a lot of times a form of punishment or it was something that I had to do to earn food and so movement for me feels more authentic because it encapsulates a lot more and I feel like there's a lot less pressure for it to look a certain way. And so movement for me just works. Obviously, if you're good with using the term exercise, that's awesome too, whatever works for you. So some of the things that I just mentioned regarding food also apply to movement. Um, I think that thinking about and reflecting on what your core beliefs are that are associated with movement is really, really important. Understanding the intention behind it. Are you only working out because you're trying to lose weight and you're trying to change your body? Or are you doing it because you like how it makes you feel and it's a way for you to uh, prioritize your mental and emotional health and you feel really good afterwards or you love the community aspect of it? I think that the intention behind it is really, really important. So when you're working to heal that relationship with movement, I think the first thing is figuring out, one, those core beliefs, two, the intention behind why you want to move your body, and three, the thought processes that you want to implement while you are moving your body. So having some affirmations or reminders that you can tell yourself that are like, I'm here because I love myself and I don't need to burn a certain amount of calories and I'm doing this because it makes me feel good or I don't need to compare myself to the person next to me, right? I think that's a big one too is it's so easy to compare ourselves to other people, whether it's on social media or the person next to us at the gym or at a workout class to think like, oh, I could be doing more or I could be doing better or look how good they're doing, but I'm, I feel like I'm not doing as good as they are. Really trying to be aware of the thought processes that are taking place when you are in that movement. Um, and then the other thing is finding movement that you enjoy doing. Things that feel fun to you. So whether that's going for a hike or rock climbing or pole dancing, or Zumba, or spin class, right? Finding forms of movement that feel fun to you. Because if you are doing a form of movement that you don't enjoy, you're going to feel very burnt out, you're gonna feel very unmotivated, and you're not gonna have fun doing it. And a big part of movement is trying to have fun while doing it, because at the end of the day, movement is a privilege. And movement is meant to be a celebration of what your body can do, a celebration of in a body that is capable of jumping up and down or lunging left to right or jumping on a spin bike, right? Like movement is a celebration of your body. And I think that it's so easy for us to get caught up in the how much weight can I lose? How flat is my stomach going to get? How toned are my muscles going to get, right? I think that 
it's okay to have goals, right? You can be working toward goals in the gym or in movement, right? Maybe that's, for example, I've been doing a lot of indoor cycling and one of my goals has been to be able to stand up on the bike longer than I could when I started um, or to be able to go a little bit faster when I'm on the bike. Those goals are things that have absolutely nothing to do with my weight or my physical appearance, but have solely to do with like my strength and little um, challenges that I'm placing on myself to keep it fun and interesting. So I think finding ways to do that is really, really beneficial. And then the last tip I'll give regarding movement is try and find a space that feels safe right? Like try and find an instructor that you feel safe around. Try and find a workout class that is size inclusive. Try and find a space where you feel like you can show up and be your true authentic self. And you don't have to put on this, you know, fake personality or this fake sense of confidence or whatnot. You can show up just as you are at the place that you're in and feel safe in doing that. And I think that is really, really big in terms of when we're healing our relationship with movement. So hopefully that answers your question. I know that this is all a lot easier said than done, but I think that surrounding yourself with people who are, you know, talking about different ways to look at food, who are talking about breaking up a toxic diet culture, who are talking about moving our bodies in a joyful way is extremely helpful. So making sure that you're not taking in information online from accounts that are telling you that exercise is only useful when you're trying to lose weight, right? Or you should only be going to the gym if you're trying to lose weight or, you know, who any sort of toxic messaging that may be coming from someone online, be aware of that because that's going to reiterate the old messaging that you're trying to unlearn. And we want to try and implement that new messaging. So follow people who are preaching what you want to hear, who are encouraging you to love yourself and celebrate yourself and have a healthy relationship with food and exercise. And just remember that diet culture wants nothing good for you. And a lot of times it is this never ending cycle of not being good enough. And so when we ditch diet culture, when we allow ourselves to step away from it, we finally get to be who we want to be. We get to do things that we've always wanted to do. And we get to enjoy foods that we've always wanted to enjoy without feeling guilty or shameful for doing that. So just a little reminder there when it comes to navigating those relationships. Next question comes from Regina, and Regina asks, would you consider going gluten-free a diet if someone is celiac? This is such a good question, and I feel like this is something that I navigated when I was in my recovery. Um, I have a small sensitivity to gluten and dairy, and there was a part of me that was really struggling to navigate this relationship with gluten and dairy because I knew that it didn't make me feel great, but also I I knew that there could be a sense of restriction there. And so one thing that I really had to do was re-explore my why. Why do I feel like I shouldn't be eating gluten and dairy regularly? And at the end of the day, the answer was because I don't feel good when I eat it. And this answer, and I mean, when I say don't feel good, I mean physically don't feel good. I don't mean mentally or emotionally. I feel really good (laughs) mentally and emotionally when I eat gluten and dairy, but I don't feel good mentally. I don't feel good physically when I eat a large amount of gluten and dairy. And so at the end of the day, the most important thing was how I felt physically was my body having a negative reaction to this food? And it was. And I knew that that for me wasn't a form of restriction. That was me honoring my body and how my body felt. And I knew that I wanted to feel good and I didn't want to have stomach aches and I didn't want to be extremely bloated and I wanted to feel energized. And I knew that when 
I ate a lot of gluten and when I ate a lot of dairy, I didn't feel those things. So I think when it comes to foods that just don't make us feel good physically and that our body doesn't respond to positively, it's really important for us to be able to honor that in a way that feels healthy. So understanding that if you're celiac, you are going to have a negative physical reaction to gluten. And I think that there is space for you to be able to say, okay, today I'm going out with friends and there may be gluten and I'm okay if I eat a little bit of it. Um, but I don't want to eat too much of it because I don't want to feel sick and I don't want my body to not feel good, right? That is very, very different than saying, I'm going out with friends tonight and there may be gluten and I know that gluten is not good for me and it could cause me to gain weight without having any allergy to it, having almost a fear of that food solely because you feel like it's a quote unquote bad food, right? And, and choosing not to eat it. I think that mindset is very, very different than choosing to not eat something because you have an allergy to it. So I think when you are exploring this, I think the number one thing is keeping in mind your intention and understanding that you are allowed to make that decision to say no to gluten if you know that you are going to feel like shit after eating it, or you know that your body is not going to feel good after eating it. That is something that you are worthy of choosing. I don't think that that is restrictive. I don't think that that is part of the diet mentality. I think that that is just understanding and being aware of your body and how it reacts to certain foods. And I think that the intention and the awareness is going to be helpful in figuring out if you feel like you're finding yourself going down a slippery slope and you're finding yourself becoming a bit restrictive when it comes to certain foods and finding yourself not necessarily only not choosing it because of the allergy, but for other diet focused reasons. Um, so that's kind of my advice on that. I navigate this differently every single day. I love gluten and I love dairy. I'm not celiac, but I do have a slight intolerance to it. And so for me, I, I know what amount I can eat to still feel good and to not have a physical reaction to it. But I also know that there's going to be situations where I'm going to be out with friends or I'm going to be on a vacation and I'm probably going to eat more gluten and dairy than I would when I'm at home. And that is okay. I can prepare myself to know that my body is probably going to feel a little bit more sluggish than normal or I'm going to have a little bit more of a physical response to that. Um, so I think that choosing to you know, not eat gluten because you're celiac is a very valid decision to make. And I don't think, I don't consider that a diet. I think that that is you respecting your body and listening to your body, being intuitive with your body. And I think that that is something that's really important for all of us to be able to do. But again, intention and being aware of when those thoughts start to become a little bit diet focused and Maybe you find yourself saying, well, Carly told me that if I'm allergic to it, then it's okay for me to choose not to eat it. And then you automatically just like convince yourself that you're allergic to <laughs> gluten or dairy and use that as the excuse to not eat it. Obviously, that's very different. I think that being truthful with yourself, listening to your body um, and honoring it in whatever way feels necessary and important is the best thing we can do. And our last question comes from Lauren. And Lauren asks, how do you build small habits to achieve self-love? This is such a good question. I, I feel like I've just loved all of these questions. This one I particularly like because I think that um, I love sharing like tangible ways to implement new habits. And so I'll just share a couple of those with you. So I think the the first thing is understanding what is self-love to you, 
right? What is your definition of self-love? My definition of self-love may be very different than your definition of self-love. So first thing is understanding what does that mean to you? What does it mean to practice self-love? Maybe that looks like taking time in the morning to journal or taking time in the morning to speak kindly to yourself in the mirror. Um, Or maybe that means eating like a food that you like because you have been craving it. Or maybe it means taking yourself for a hike or going on a date with yourself or whatever that looks like. Figure out what self-love means to you. Once you've determined what self-love means to you, then you can start to think about, okay, what kind of behaviors or habits align with this definition? So I think a big thing that I find with a lot of my clients is that one thing that may work for me when it comes to practicing self-love may not work for you right? Some people are really, really big into journaling. Other people absolutely hate it. (laughs) Some people are really, really big into going outside and hiking. Other people hate being outside. So I think that an important part of this is removing an expectation that it needs to look a certain way and removing any comparison that you may have regarding how other people practice self-love and find those those habits and those behaviors that really line up with your definition of self-love and create a game plan for yourself, right? Like start small and say, okay, every morning for 15 minutes, I'm going to listen to a podcast or every night for five minutes, I'm going to meditate. Starting small and implementing a new behavior or habit is, I think, really, really important because it can be really easy for us to get overwhelmed and implement five new things and then feel like we're failing and then get burnt out and then be like, okay, I can't do this. Screw self-love. This is all not working for me. So find something small that you can start with. And remember that it takes 21, about 21 days to form a new habit, to form a new behavior. So allow yourself 21 days or a couple of weeks to implement this behavior, implement this new habit. Um, so that over time that becomes more, it becomes easier for you to implement. It doesn't feel um, like a lot of work, like maybe it felt in the beginning. Um, And I think that part of this, an important part of this is understanding that that behavior or that habit can change at any time, right? That's completely up to you. You get to change that. You get to customize it. You get to be flexible in that. So I think that at, at least finding time every day or every other day I recommend every day, maybe it's starting with 10 minutes and then working up to like 30 minutes or an hour, but finding time every day to think about that definition of self-love and think about, okay, what can I do for myself right now to validate and uphold that definition that you created? So I think that that's a really great place to start. Create that definition Think about behaviors or habits that uphold and validate that definition and start small. Start by implementing one new habit once a day for 21 days and then see where you're at. Maybe you're ready to implement another one and then you can do that same process again. Um, Removing comparisons, understanding that your self-love looks very different than my self-love and what I do to practice self-love could be very different than what you do to practice self-love.
So that's why we don't want to compare ourselves because I feel like when I started my self-love journey, I was like going onto Pinterest and looking up self-love or typing in hashtag self-love and I was comparing what I was doing to what other people were doing online. And it wasn't working for me like I wanted it to because I wasn't allowing it to be genuine and unique to me. I wasn't creating or thinking about what self-love really meant for me um, or what that looked like. And I wasn't doing um, habits or behaviors that I enjoyed doing. And so it took some time for me to step back and think about, okay, this is what self-love means to me. This is how I want to practice self-love. Um, and these are the habits and the behaviors that align with that, that validate that, that uphold that definition. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, hopefully that's helpful. I think that, you know, it's just about how you feel and it's about, you know, again, intention, why you're choosing to do something, what the why behind it is, what the definition of self-love is for you. Um, and just have fun with it. Allow yourself to try new things and don't feel guilty when something doesn't work because there are plenty of other things you can try and you will find the, that you will find the things that work for you. So give yourself time and patience to explore that. And that wraps up the five questions that I wanted to answer for you all today. Um, thank you all so much for submitting your questions. I've really loved doing this format of podcast. So keep an eye out on my Instagram stories. I will probably do more of these because I love that it gives you the opportunity to submit questions and then it gives me the opportunity to answer them in depth here on the podcast rather than, you know, giving you a short little couple sentence response on Instagram. So thank you again to everyone who submitted questions. If I didn't get to answer yours today, I apologize. I really do wish I would have time to answer all of them, but unfortunately, um, I do not. So hopefully I'll be able to do another Q&A soon, but let me know what your thoughts are on this. If you enjoy, enjoyed this style of podcast, um, let me know if you learned anything new. Feel free to leave a rating and review. It is incredibly helpful for the podcast and it's, you know, helps us just get get our message out there and it helps us reach more people, which is really, really exciting. Um, send this to a friend, send it to a family member, and let me know if there's any guests or topics you would like us to cover in future podcasts. I'm really loving the trajectory that the podcast is heading in. I have amazing guests lined up. I'm loving the conversations that I'm getting to have. And I want you all to be able to kind of contribute and have a say in some of the things that we talk about. So feel free to DM me on Instagram, send me a message, let me know um, what ideas you have. And again, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.